Today's episode of Pop Culture Reference is brought to you by the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee Professional Cinema Society. UWM-PCS is a student organization focused on bringing the film community, UWM, together. For more information about the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee Professional Cinema Society, please visit their Facebook page. Now, on with the show. Broadcasting live from the abandoned Gotham World's Fairgrounds, this is Pop Culture Reference, the only podcast that will avenge your dead parents. I'm Seamus Connolly. I'm Garrett Strother. I'm Ricardo Salgado. How do you do, fellows? How oh, are you I'm doing great. This Hello. You know, it's, it's nice and early. Eight in the morning. Well, it's technically nine in the morning if we're trying to date ourselves specifically. We're getting up early to record this one before Seamus yeah, goes off to work. This is for you, audience. We're, we're making sure we're getting it in there. And I guess let's jump right into news if we right. have any news. Um, I have several pieces of news. The first and probably most exciting of which is that it, Disney officially came forward and said that Kevin Feige is going to be developing a movie for Star Wars. Which yeah, that makes sense. It's exciting for a couple different reasons. Specifically that they, like, this is the first uh, official movie announcement that they've come out with. It's been Rise of Skywalker and then a lot of series Disney Plus content that they've been talking about. Apparently the Ryan Johnson stuff is up in the air, so this is... In that way, this feels very similar to the Ryan Johnson stuff Mm -hmm. or the Benioff and Weiss, uh, the Game of Thrones guys, their supposed trilogy. Right, yeah. Where it's something that they're going to put out. And there's probably already been a deal struck, but I'm not confident about the future of the Johnson trilogy or the Benioff and Weiss trilogy. I think this is a much safer bet, and I think they know that because... Kevin, please. (laughs) (laughs) Pretty much. Whatever magic is coming out of your ass, we need it in Star Wars. The, that was like an audio recording from the room that was they were begging him in to come come aboard. And that's a good choice for Disney to be making right now, especially from an economic standpoint because Marvel's doing really well. Feige knows what he's doing. I would be a little concerned about what he's going to do with a Star Wars film in terms of he's been building a cinematic universe for a really long time, mm-hmm. and I think that's how his brain works that's why it's so successful but because he's had this vision from the very beginning but also what i don't want star wars to be this unending cinematic universe and i'm afraid that that's the only thing that feige is going to bring to the table i i think you might be too late already like when Hmm. disney bought luke's film and all that the announcement was like yeah like one star wars a year for the next 50 years or whatever the crazy numbers were on that Mm mm-hmm They've obviously slowed down since uh, the release of Solo <laughs> and all that, and the the advent of Disney Plus on the horizon. They're, they're moving away from the Skywalkers, no? Like, that's kind of being left in the dust. That would be one. really nice if it were true, but I don't have the <laughs> don't, faith in no. Disney for them to not do that. I think we'll, we'll see how Rise of Skywalker goes, and then hopefully all the new Star Wars content that Disney produces will be you better make, you and farther from rule? Skywalker. Hmm. A rule? As in, no Star Wars talk until the goddamn movie comes out. I would love to not talk about Rise of Skywalker until we see Rise of Skywalker. I think that's great. Deal. I don't know jack about it. I didn't even see that new trailer, <clears throat> What's Her Name, and the other stuff. So mm-hmm. We're going to spare you from 
being one of the million of podcasts that are going to talk about Star Wars. <laughs> every subtitle of every episode of this podcast is going to be like this, that, and that, and then in parentheses also more <laughs> Star Wars talk. Because it just always ends up there. Well, then let's move on from Star Wars talk. Seamus, uh, we talked last week about something that was going to be announced the day we were recording but hadn't been announced yet. And I think you want to follow up on that. On the day, last podcast, I brought it up, just rumors coming around. And then uh, later that very day, there was finally a release date trailer for The Last of Us Part Two. It's been years since the first one came out, so this has been... I know this is pretty heavily anticipated. Yeah, big old story trailer, finally some solid gameplay. It looks, you know, as brutal as the first one was uh, however many years ago when it came out, and it's still just a lot of speculation right now on plot elements going down, but it's gonna be tragic, ladies and gentlemen. I can guarantee that. That release date uh, at the end there, February 26th, 2020. So coming up really fast. Yeah, really. they're f- yeah. they're not gonna be they're not <clears throat> delaying it any longer than they are now. Well, you don't know that, do you? Video games get delayed all the time. Why, why are you putting that juju out there? I have a feeling that you know they've spent their time developing and they've teased it out enough. I heard it's gonna be on two discs standard, like it's no big way. as hell. The thing now, yeah, like Red so Dead did that. Is uh, this the Red Dead effect? Halo like, Five, so, I think. So did it's that. like when Harry Potter split its last movie into two movies, and then every franchise had to split its last movie into two movies, yeah. whether it made sense and this, or not. It's just so large. It's like some, however many times the size of the Grand Theft Auto Five map. I don't know if it's open world or not, but it's definitely big. It sounds big. The other biggest piece of news out of that front that surprised me but actually made me pretty happy is that they have completely foregone any multiplayer elements at all in the game. No really? Okay. co-op, no PvP stuff. It's just strictly a dramatic as hell, really good Troy Baker adventure with terrifying zombies. I'm, I'm very excited. I think that's a really good choice. I think yeah, that me too. I, in the age of Fortnite and mobile gaming appreciate that there are people that just want to sit down and tell a story and not have to worry about all kinds of... Is there going to be DLC? Do we know? All of the DLC from the first one was just multiplayer add-ons, so I doubt they're going to go that way. They A lot of you know developers are learning their lessons since um, Battlefront 2. Hate to bring it back to Star Wars. But it was a disaster. And it, it will never leave. It will never leave. It really won't, because I'm also going to bring up Fallen Order, because that is another game being developed right now that is completely multiplayer and DLC-free. Yep. Which which I was at at the celebration panel for that, and that was something that they were really stressing a lot on the day, because that was the day they released the trailer. They had really not announced anything about the game, and the biggest ovation that I saw them get (laughs) was when they were like, this game is going to be completely DLC free no loot boxes it's pretty messed that like we have to like really stand up and fight for quality in video games still that is really good I think this is a good trend in video gaming I hope it continues I hope it's not just a little fad that they're doing. Yeah, until they, like, trick people into getting comfortable again and then springing it on us. It's... Or maybe then those two discs of Last of Us will just become two separate purchases that you have to make. That's something that I would be afraid They're going to make you pay again for the install disc? Right, it's 60 bucks to install. It's another 60, 60 bucks to play. play it. That's what I'm saying. Like, Oof. that would not be good. 
if they aren't making their money off the loot boxes, I am afraid about how the industry will adapt to make up that loss. Let's hope it's not even a, a bigger middle finger to the, the game and consumer, which we all are. All right, well, real quick, let's transition back to movie news. I think this what? is our last piece of news. Uh, I already told you both about this, and it's not something I'm particularly thrilled about. They have announced that writer, director, actor Jason Bateman is developing a Clue remake starring him and Ryan Reynolds. Now, we have very specific thoughts about this, because we have speculated wildly for a long time about our perfect uh, the Clue original, recast. The original form of this podcast was more of a, a Clue stan account. Yeah, <laughs> truly. It's, it it was kind just... of evolved into We have very strong opinions on the Clue franchise. Yeah, this this was going to be like that one podcast where we watch Clue minute by minute and analyze it for like an hour and a half a week. That's the thing. It's I think it's frustrating just because I am worried about the type of humor that's going to come out of Jason Bateman and Ryan Reynolds in that slot. I really like both of them. Yeah, I was going to say, I like Jason Bateman. But I don't think that's exactly the right brand of humor for the Clue franchise. I was hoping for somebody more like Kumail Nanjiani, Nick Offerman, comedians like that who I think... We only know two people. Yeah, maybe they'll fill out... who the rest of the cast is. Yeah, they can fill it out and it'll maybe check a lot of the boxes that we have. Because, I mean, we're probably not the only... Obviously, we're not the only ones thinking about a Clue remake now. Mm -hmm. So, like what you said with Jason Bateman and Ryan Reynolds, I feel like they might be trying to nab a different audience than that is going to see a Clue remake. Yeah, I think that's a very... That's the thing, is that the audience that is familiar and interested in Clue... And the demographic that is attracted by comedians like Jason Bateman and Ryan Reynolds are not really... Yeah, the Venn diagram isn't big on that. But think. maybe that's why they are going for that demographic. Is, is because Ryan they feel... Reynolds the butler? Well, I'm assuming Jason Bateman would be the butler if he's writing and directing too. Mm-hmm. And I think he could do a good butler. Ideally, the rest of the cast would just be also the rest of the cast of Rest Development for this. And I think... <laughs> do you want to just run through the perfect cast that we've assembled? Do you remember it off the top of your head? I, I think it's I can do. Obvious from this news that Ryan Reynolds is gonna die. Like he's gonna yeah, be yeah. But Ryan Reynolds body. is definitely Mr. Body. I think. Oh well, I think that's a lot more funny. I'm into that. We didn't get this from the article. I just think it's fairly obvious that if I were gonna pick an A-lister to be Mr. Body, that Ryan Reynolds would be up on that list. I think, but I'm. But also, they could make him Professor Plum or something. He would have a fun sense of humor about being cast as a dead body. I'm sure. Like I'm he'd sure, be yeah. into it. So I think I'm trying to remember all of our. I think I have them all. So Colonel Mustard is the obvious choice, born to play it, Nick Offerman. Mm who is the modern incarnation of Martin Mull in a lot of ways anyway. (laughs) Professor Plum was Kumail Nanjiani, if I'm not mistaken. I believe so. Mr. Green was John Mulaney. There it is. That's what I was thinking of. Miss Scarlet was Allison Brie. Miss White, Jessica Walter. Of course, the impeccable Jessica Walter. (laughs) And Miss Peacock, Tina Fey. Now, if... We get, you tell me you wouldn't watch that movie, (laughs) audience? I'm saying if we get half of... If we get a third of the Donate casting. to our GoFundMe and we'll make that movie. <laughs> well, yeah. any person that is trying to cast a Clue movie and is not immediately thinking Nick Offerman for Colonel Mustard it doesn't know what they're doing. Because I cannot think of anybody else. Dwayne The Rock. That's what I'm worried about, is that... I'd cast The Rock as the butler. 
very tiny tuxedo. See, I mean, that's very fun visual humor. I could, I could see a little bit like that, but Just like... make him lurch. <laughs> make him lurch? That'd be pretty funny. I'm going to reserve most of my judgment until I see that cast list filled out a little more. If Tim Curry crawls out of retirement and makes a little cameo... That, that would be... be what if he's Mr. Body? Wouldn't what if, that just be a fun little... What little... if he's just the butler? Now that would be truly incredible. That, that would get me into a theater seat. If you're super into Clue talk, <laughs> keep listening because we're going to do our eventual Clue episode. Oh, yeah. We forgot to mention a that. A whole episode all about Clue. Yes. up uh, Right before Knives Out, right before Thanksgiving, mm. the week before, we're going to do a Clue episode in honor of the next murder mystery with a star-studded cast that will hopefully be good and i think ryan johnson even said it's a spiritual successor to clue which is no i mean it really looks like it and you know i heard about it a little bit didn't give it much thought then i saw the the trailer in front of i don't know whatever it was in front of was a fun time in hollywood yeah probably it changed my mind very rapidly just seeing how they were treating all the the humor in that yeah i'm really excited for that movie and i'm really excited to talk about clue at length with you guys so I think we should move on to the main segment of yeah, our podcast. Yeah, we don't podcast. want to spoil all the Clue stuff for the, for the Clue episode. <laughs> Welcome back to the Pop Culture Reference Podcast. We are actually uh, coming back to do a little extra chunk at the end here because after we wrapped, we actually found out some pretty major news that has there's been on... News? There's news? Oh, there's big news. It's, What's the news? It's uh, It's been on a lot of people's minds just because it's been so public and weird. After many weeks of, you know, not sure where things were going, Spider-Man is now confirmed staying in the MCU. At least for one movie, as this article states, it confirms that there will be a third film in the Marvel Cinematic Universe Spider-Man film series that Kevin Feige will, in fact, produce, and that Spider-Man will return for one film. That's all that's confirmed, although if I were to speculate, I would say that the deal is if there's a certain amount of money made off of this movie, Mm -hmm. then maybe the deal will move forward, something like like that. Sony and Disney likely have a stipulation in the agreement that has not been made public about whether or not Spider-Man will be able to continue in the MCU after this film and it's gonna make a billion oh yeah far from home did and after all of this especially people are gonna show up i mean the fact that i think it's pretty transparent that at the end of the day even if there was actual animosity between sony and disney this was a negotiating tactic oh yeah are you kidding me and it's also a publicity tactic because then they've had free reign of the press for what Two months? Yeah, they got people all mad. It's like, oh, we're mad about No More Spider-Man. Who do we blame? And everyone's picking sides, and then... Disney's off in the corners. Like, I heard it was Sony's fault. You should be <laughs> mad at Sony. And then the mob is just like, yeah, whoever said that? And that mob mentality worked because now they have raised the percentage that Disney will get of the gross to 25% from the Spider-Man. That's a lot of money. That is Jeez. so much. Because I'm fairly sure the issue with the last negotiation was that Disney won a 50-50, mm-hmm. and that's when Sony said no. Which, uh, that's yeah, ridiculous. No yeah. one would blame Sony for pulling that stuff off the table. I mean, I'm really proud of the way Sony stood up to Disney. It's not that I dislike Spider-Man or yeah. the Marvel Cinematic Universe or anything like that, but I think that it's good to see companies standing up to the corporate behemoth that is Disney. I'd be more on board if Sony had any idea what they were doing. I mean, they made Spider-Verse... Hey, they made that Spider-Man happened. three. Come on, let's not go. Let's not get crazy. Spider Verse happened by accident. 
you're doing what now? You want to multi? I don't know what it is you're talking about. There's a lot of different styles. Lord and Miller, you just do whatever it is you're going to do. My God, they did it. Boy, did they. This is also stipulating on the deal that Disney will retain merchandising rights for Spider-Man and will put up a quarter of the financing for the film. So while they're receiving 25% profits, they're also putting up 25% of the financing for the film. So that sure, makes sure. a little bit more sense. Yeah. It's still aggravating, obviously. You I'm sure for Sony. Anywhere in there? Oh, actually, there was a little, if I'm not mistaken, a Feige tease that there might be a little bit of a shared thing going on that we may see Mr. Tom Holland in whatever Venom sequel yeah. they have. That's the catch. Which is, yeah, it's going to be so weird. It's going to confuse a hell of a lot of people if they actually do that. I I hope I'm wrong and I'm just, like, misremembering, but... Have you guys seen that video where Amy Pascal, like, like they're talking about Venom and someone asks, is is Venom going to be in the MCU? Is that going to be connected at all? And she, without hesitation, is like, yeah, totally. Venom's going to (laughs) be... Kevin's, like, right next to her. She's like, what? Mm -hmm. What?" (laughs) Yeah, that's funny. Hey, you know what? Maybe that was the super special leak that Venom is going to be in uh, something something soon. Very possible. You said that Tom Holland tweeted something else? Yeah, it was uh, no doubt he was just like sitting in his chair, like revving up to do Yes, thank God stuff. I get to work again. Just texting people like, can I post something yet? Can I post something yet? And it was, it was a clip from The Wolf of Wall Street of Jordan Belford. It's like the scene where he's like announcing that he's leaving and it's just him on a microphone going... I'm not fucking leaving. And then just everybody's cheering and getting real into it. And not even any, like, text in the post. It's just that video. It's a fun way for him to show his excitement in not getting ripped away from all the stuff he's been working on so far. I always want to go, Mr. Stark. And he doesn't have to anymore. It's great. I always wonder how much of Tom Holland's aloof social media presence is corporate and measured or how much of it is literally just that he's a 22 year old and he's like doesn't know how to use social media the way that he's supposed to be because there's a lot of leak stuff that he leaks that right. it seems like he's supposed to be leaking it i mean there's i'm sure there's some orchestration behind some of that stuff but i do think like his reputation for spoiling things he's not supposed to isn't all manufactured of course. oh yeah i mean i think if you put any 22 year old kid in a interview on every late yeah. night show and every morning show and every podcast especially in when you the tell world, him hey you're spider-man don't ever talk about it though <laughs> <laughs> God, yeah. If I, as an almost 21-year-old, if I was a year older and I was in the best role I'll ever get ever right off the bat, I would I would be pretty excited, too. I'm going to be honest. But yeah, that was something that we really felt like we had to stop, record a little quick session on, plop it into the news segment for this week, because we didn't feel like we could wait a full week to talk about it. Last, last point, unless anybody has something else, I, my first thought was how excited I was that uh, our boy J. Jonah Jameson will, fi- will still have something to rant about in the He's upcoming stuff. Yeah. He's a menace. It's the Get best. me pictures of Spider-Man. <laughs> oh, I love it. I love it. It's going to be great. All right, well, back to your regularly scheduled programming. In preparation for Joker, we have all watched Batman Mask of the Phantasm. Which, great, really good 
movie. I didn't expect it to be as good as it was, if I'm being honest. Yeah, Seamus and I... Like, what is that supposed to mean? Yeah, like, that's not Connelly. even a dig on that great animated Batman series. It's just, like, you see Bruce Wayne a little more raw than you would expect as a cartoon, you know? Real heavy stuff at the the Wayne grave. It's really, it's really treating that character with respect in a way that a lot of the movie incarnations don't even. I think they give yeah. a lot of time to Bruce Wayne, because most of the time that we see Bruce Wayne in this movie, he's out of the cowl. Like, he's just himself. He's the character Bruce Wayne. He's not just trying to get to the Batman stuff, which is, I think, what most Batman iterations do. It's the only Batman movie where Bruce Wayne is the main character. Which every other one has always been, really been more about the villain. Very true. I'll agree with that. So Seamus and I had not seen this film before last night. Ricardo is a massive Batman fan. I can let you talk about that a little more, though. I just meet my love for this character. Yeah. Overall, like, give him some of your bat credentials, Ricardo. Yeah. How many box sets of how many bat things do you own? Well, I've bought The Dark Knight three different times on DVD, Blu-ray, and then the box set that comes with all three of them. I've bought that deluxe collector's edition of the animated series that they came out with, like, I think maybe a year ago. That's what I watched The Mask of the Phantasm on, your Blu-ray last night. Yeah, I, you've shown me a couple of uh, a couple of good ones out of that box set, and it's, it's impressive. So yeah, I think overall it is gorgeously drawn in the vein of the animated series. I think mm. you can tell they've got a little bit more time or maybe a little bit more budget. Definitely more budget. If I remember correctly, they had to do the movie and do the show at the same time. Ooh, Jeez, that sounds like a time crunch. Because that's just how animation works if you want to do a movie based on your show. No, that makes a lot of sense, but I think it shows all of the care that they took with it, that it, does, it doesn't It does seem rushed or like that they were multitasking mm-hmm. at all. It seems very focused. There are really important revelations for the Batman character in this movie that we'll get into in a second because I want to like I want to mark when we go into spoilers for people who haven't oh, seen yeah. the movie. Oh, yeah, good call. Good call. I think it's a really great continuation of the animated series. I think it's a really solid foundation for not only the character of Bruce Wayne, getting to know him in a way that I don't think I've ever gotten to know Bruce Wayne in a Batman film, but also expanding the world of Batman in significant ways outside the realm of Bruce Wayne's life. Which is a shame, because this movie is so fantastic, it's so good, it's a shame it didn't make any money. (laughs) Oh, is that true? Yeah, it was, this was a theatrical release that Warner Brothers, I think at the time, they just did not market at all. Damn. And anyone that like saw it, it's like, oh, it's that cartoon that I can just watch on TV. Well, it was Why? before the superhero boom, too. I think yeah. that's the other thing is that now we had Spider-Verse, which I think a lot of people felt was not properly marketed and only was able to make as much money as it did by word of mouth and it was successful by the fact that people saw it and were blown away not only by the animation, but by the heart and the storytelling. And I think that Mask of the Phantasm has all three of those elements, but it's not set in a world where superhero movies are without a doubt economically viable. I mean, Batman 89 had come out, what, four or five years prior to this? Yeah, something like that. There's almost been no superhero movies at this point. There's been Batman movies and Superman movies, and there was a Wonder Woman TV show. Yeah, everything else was just, you know, strictly comics at that point, and mm-hmm. that was still very, you know, considered very immature and childish. It wasn't like the the culture of, like, graphic novels can be very legitimate forms of, you know, like, literature. It was just kind of like, like, who cares? It's another, you know, dime issue of something. But I'm really glad that it has this gorgeous Blu-ray release in the box set. I think it was a great, what I'm assuming was a restoration, a new print. Every 
episode, all the movies digitally remastered and restored. Well, it looked absolutely gorgeous. I was really glad that we got to watch it on that Blu-ray. I was just blown away by the animation. The yeah, way really. the, the mist around the phantasm rolls in. Totally uh, that is just a gorgeous thing to see. If, if you... Like, I, I want to get into more, like, the, the content specifically. Like, what, what really uh, stuck out for you watching this? Like, is there any, like, couple moments that really did it for you? Okay, well, I think that we should give the audience a little bit of background in case they haven't seen the film. Oh, yeah, that's right. We completely brushed past that. Ricardo, I think you're going to be the best <laughs> yeah. one suited to telling the audience. Okay, we are in Gotham City. Bruce Wayne is reunited with a past love who he hasn't seen in many, many years. And while he has to deal with that as Bruce Wayne, as Batman, he has to figure out who this mysterious new figure is in Gotham City, the Phantasm, who's been murdering uh, members of a very prominent crime family. And seemingly framing Batman for it yeah, as well, yeah. which is a plot line that kind of gets dropped, really. Yeah, like, there's an element of having to clear his name, but Commissioner Gordon's pretty much there to stick by him. Yeah, Commissioner yeah. Gordon knows what's up. Yeah, he's, he's wise about Batman. And it's, it's you know, heavy heavy on the, the past love, the returning... I'm forgetting the character's name now. It was... Andrea Ron, Beaumont. Andrea Beaumont. Yeah, the impeccable Andrea Beaumont. <laughs> the love story, of course, told in flashback, which I found refreshing in that I was not annoyed anytime we went to a flashback. I feel like with most films with a continual flashback structure, I get really perturbed when we go to a flashback off of the main story. But this time, I felt, felt like I was really getting to know both of those characters and get invested in their relationship in a way that it didn't annoy me to go back to that storyline every now and again and get more context for what's going on. It also provided some really great setups that I didn't even realize were setups until they paid them off in the third act, which we'll talk mm-hmm. about in spoilers a little bit. But yeah, I think that the structure of this movie is just impeccable, and the writing is really solid in a way that I was not expecting it to be. That's uh, thanks to Paul Dini and crew, which Paul Dini is one of the best Batman writers of all time. He wrote a lot of the <clears throat> best episodes of the animated series. He's written a bunch of comics. The real hero of these stories. That's fantastic. That's Phantasm. <laughs> All right, so I guess we'll go into spoilers then. Yeah, let's... So, let's... Uh, ultimately, I think we would all strongly recommend this movie. If Absolute, you've not seen it, absolutely. please go out and see it. Um, as somebody who has had limited familiarity with the animated series, I think that you don't need to have a lot of animated series context to go into this film. However, I do know that you are definitely going to need to have some Batman knowledge, but if you've seen a couple yeah, of Batman you know movies... just the basics of Batman, you can jump into this movie. Yeah, I, I think I've only seen a handful of animated series episodes, and I, I followed right along just having residual Batman stuff in my head. Yeah, I think it worked really effectively. And then let's jump into spoilers real quick. Let's... Seamus, what were the moments that grabbed you? I'm going to be honest, I didn't even expect the Joker to show up. That was a bit of a surprise, even though I probably shouldn't have been surprised by that. And that is the truly impeccable Mark, Mark Hamill, Hamill, right? I didn't want to I didn't want to overstep my bounds. <laughs> he he's just always a a treat when he's the Joker, truly. No, yeah, I think that performance is really good. I think this film uses that character really well in that he is not the focal point, but plays an important role as an agent of chaos in the plot. He complicates the entire structure of the film. It makes so much sense. I can't believe I didn't realize the second they went to the World's Fair, oh, yeah, this is definitely a place where the Joker would like to (laughs) hang out. (laughs) I... 
It's like, oh, what's going to happen it's here? Like an idiot. And abandoned amusement parks. Yeah, that's just his domain. It's very on brand for the character to be hanging out in that place. The fact that we get the reveal of an origin for him really threw me for a loop. Yeah, Ricardo and I were watching too. it last night, and I really freaked out and kind of grabbed Ricardo, and yeah. I was like, what? For something that should be such an insanely big reveal, they make him just the chauffeur of the, the mob guys, which yeah. is... It still works in the whole no origin. You don't know his name. Yeah. And you don't know how he became the Joker. You just know at one point he was this driver guy for this mob. And he, like, whistled at Beaumont as she walked in or whatever. Yeah, no, it's it's nice and ambiguous. It doesn't ruin anything about that character's mystique. But I think it also humanizes him in a way that's important that I'm worried next week's film (laughs) will not do. I'm not seeing a lot of abandoned amusement parks in the Joker trailer. I'm very disappointed. Zero out of ten. I'm not even going to watch this movie. <laughs> You're blacklisting it immediately. No amusement parks. No World's Fair. But yeah, I think that's about what we have to say about Mask of the Phantasm, and we should move on to our next segment. Yeah, next segment. Shirt. Shirt. Gary, what's going on? Gary, where are we? Ricardo, come on in. What's what's going on? You, Ricardo Salgado, are in Hell is Other Podcasters, the segment of the show where we break down each week the newest episode of The Good Place. All right, let's get into it. I have just seen the latest episode. That's fantastic. Now, normally Seamus will be here with us, but he's still catching up on season three. But he'll be sure to be here next week. Is that okay with you? Yeah, yeah it's just going to be you and me right now. And our lovely people in the audience. What's up, guys? So, Ricardo, what did you think of the latest episode of The Good Place? It's back. I'm just excited it's back. I'm really raring to go. This episode was called A Girl from Arizona, Part 1. And is the season 4 opener, the final season of The Good Place. So That's so sad. It is very sad, but I'm also glad they're getting to wrap it up at the point that they want to wrap it up and not mm-hmm. being forced by the network to go on forever. Um, so it was actually directed by, this episode was directed by Drew Goddard. Oh, who okay. Who is a really fantastic writer, director, producer, including uh, having worked on much of Marvel's Daredevil, written and directed Bad Times at the El Royale. He wrote The Martian and Cabin in the Woods. Mm. He has a really impressive filmography, and I'm really excited to see what part two next week brings. But for now, let's break down part one. So we open the episode with Eleanor showing Chidi around the good place. As viewers will recall from the end of last season, Chidi um, volunteered to have his mind wiped in order to participate in the new neighborhood that they are building so that he is not a conflict of interest with his former lover, Simone, who has also been placed in this and new you guys have been crying ever since that just heartbreaking finale. It's a really interesting place for Eleanor's character to begin. I think naming the episode A Girl from Arizona is a really smart way to put the focus on Eleanor's character and what she's going through other than just the storytelling because it really made me reflect on how far she's come since the beginning of the series and what a yeah. better person she genuinely is because of her relationship with these other characters. Mm -hmm. I think it's a really smart way 
to put the focus on her at the beginning of this final season without having to necessarily derail the plot to focus on her character. Yeah, and for a final season, it should focus on Eleanor. Oh, absolutely, yeah. I th- yeah, she's definitely the character that's come the furthest, except maybe Michael. Adding more heartbreak onto heartbreak, at the end of Eleanor showing Chidi around his dream house he forgets her name something which clearly has an impact on her and even michael the reformed demon (laughs) is able to register as a significant blow to her morale i think they're doing a really efficient job of showing us how sad this is for her what did you think of what Jason had going on in this episode? Switching characters real quick. If I'm being totally on, I don't dislike the character. He's always just kind of been my least favorite just because he's kind of, one of oh, he's dumb. Yeah, he's, he's gonna, the least he's dynamic. He's going to be dumb. But I think... But he is fun to watch. I like the nonsense that comes out of his mouth. Putting him in a relationship with Janet has really, I think, built that character up a little mm. bit more. And given him the Derek character as a nemesis... I love Derek so much. Played by the fantastic Jason Matsukas, who pops up on all of your favorite sitcoms as the most deranged character <laughs> on your favorite sitcom. I'm specifically thinking of Adrian Pimento yeah, on Brooklyn yeah. Nine-Nine, which is, of course, the same crew that makes The Good Place. So, of course, you know, they're going to recur actors. Real quick, just one of my favorite bits from this episode was... The, the Derek, his drink that he made was just a ball of ice. It was an onion. Is that what that was? Yeah, that was an onion. Oh, I saw him shaking something. I thought he just like made a ball of ice. No, he had an onion in a martini shaker, put it in a martini glass, and then stuck a skewer with an olive on it into it. That's, weir- that's weirdly better. <laughs> and then when he went to take a bite... <laughs> bite into, into the glass. Into the martini glass. There was a lot of nonsense this episode. I think they're really leaning into the absurdity that is that they can fully realize now that they have had the audience on board for three seasons. Yeah, that's going to be tons of fun. A great bit of absurdity was the, the baby elephant made of light that whispers secrets about the universe. Yeah, I think that was probably my favorite moment of this episode. That was, I think, the, the most I laughed in this episode because there is... We met our four new humans this episode. We already knew two of them. Yeah. We knew Simone, who we previously knew as the neuroscientist that helped the Soul Squad back on Earth, and we knew our gossip columnist whose name is escaping me. Luckily, we got to meet our other two humans, or are they? Are they humans, Ricardo? Are we going into spoilers? I think... We could go ahead and go into spoilers. I think we're kind of going chronologically through the episode anyway. <coughs> spoiler warning, spoiler warning, spoiler warning. So the two humans we're introduced to are Linda, the most boring woman in the universe, who is entirely unimpressed by the good place and all of its many wonders. Which is a trait I tend to really like in characters. Just like characters who could not care less about the current like circumstances going on around them. I think you could say, Ricardo, that she doesn't give a fork. <laughs> uh, the other character is the worst man in the world. <laughs> it's very uh, pull-your-shirt-collar. Uh, his name is Brent. He treats Janet as a secretary, makes a lot of inappropriate comments about the state of political correctness in the world today. Well, it's PC gone mad, Gary. Oh. <laughs> Boy, boy, isn't it, Ricardo? (laughs) 
so that was very uncomfortable, but I mean, it's a very successful character. Oh, it's definitely a big, like, skewering of that type of person. Yeah, and I'm interested to see where they take him in the future, because obviously he rubs Eleanor entirely the wrong way. He rubs everyone the wrong way. But I think that... Because that guy exists in life. You know, a lot of guys like that. (laughs) But I think going back to Eleanor's character development and seeing how far she's come as a person, the kind of scumbag, Mm -hmm. the self-appointed title, the scumbag that she was at the beginning of the show, and now looking at her reaction to this kind of person. I think that shows a lot of her character growth, not that she's the same kind of awful. Mm -hmm. It really made me reflect on the journey that that character's been on. They did a really good job playing Eleanor's arc in the background of this episode, how strong she's having to be in addition to having to go from being a girl from Arizona to trying to save the afterlife yeah. for the entire universe. As we learned last season, the game is rigged, guys. No one gets to go to the good place. Yeah, for those of you who don't remember, uh, the bad place has found a way so that the point system always goes and skews so that people, no matter what they do, end up in the bad place. The main story of season three was... There is no ethical consumption under capitalism, is really what they were trying to say with that. So I'm interested to see how they refine that thesis this season and how they finally leave. It's going to take a hard turn. The message this season is going to be, you know, is communism really that bad? I think we should give it another shot. I think that's I, I think that's not unlikely. Um, the Gosman colonist's name is John Wheaton. So those are our four humans. Or are they, Ricardo? They are not because... Linda's a secret double agent, a demon in disguise. A agreement is made with the judge that now, as punishment for the bad place trying to send a demon posing as a human, Cheedy will now be acting, since his memory has been erased, as the fourth human in the test to see if they can prove all the other humans, which I think is a huge win for the cause of our main characters, but also a personal blow to Eleanor, realizing how much she's going to have to interact with Cheedy, and also the way that Simone and Cheedy are going to be connecting. Oh no. Conflict. We haven't even talked about Simone this episode, which I think is a really bizarre turn for this character, but what I'm enjoying... Yeah, I didn't see that coming. I liked it. As a neuroscientist, she thinks she is hallucinating as she's on her deathbed, and that everything that's happening around her in the good place isn't real and is behaving accordingly. That is something that Eleanor is having a really hard time trying to wrangle while also dealing with the rest of the humans in the good place and I'm very curious to see where that arc goes and how Chidi's going to play into that because the minimal interaction that mm. Chidi and Simone had this episode didn't go anywhere. I hope she's like this for just a little while longer. Oh, I think <laughs> it would be really interesting but I just all. think it's really funny. But also knowing at the neck-breaking pace that the good place usually moves along at. It doesn't it feel like it just like started like last year. It really does. And but also they cover so much ground. The good place does. Mm-hmm. Every few episodes they entirely change yeah, the here's direction a new of bit the of show. information that changes everything. And I think that's a sign of really smart writing. Obviously, Michael Schur, this is his baby that he's been working on for a really long time. This is his magnum opus, I think, in a lot of ways, because it's able to talk about everything, every facet (laughs) of life. It's able to touch on in really smart and genuinely moving ways. It's going to make a great box set when this season's over. I guess we leave the end of the episode with the demon that was posing as Linda being loaded onto the train back to the bad place. 
at the beginning episode recap, they made the specific note to show us last season. The Bad Place created a Michael suit for one of the demons to wear. And there's a segment while they're loading the demon mm-hmm. back onto the train in this Michael episode. Michael is off screen. Michael is off screen on the train, as is Janet. Two characters who we know can be replicated by the Bad Place. And as the Bad Place showed us this episode, they are not above sending demons into the midst of our main characters in order to accomplish their goals. I'm calling it now, I think it is skin suit Michael, not real Michael. Yeah, I think that about wraps it up for this episode. I think it's a promising start to this season. I really enjoyed it. It made me laugh a lot. Please join us as we continue week to week, catching up with The Good Place, our big, our fond farewell to just... Just a great piece of television. One of the best shows currently on television. Yeah. If not the best show currently on television. So I think now it's time for us to move on to one of our other weekly segments, Where's Riley? (laughs) Uh, Since this is our first time doing Where's Riley, let us fill you in. We have a friend. His name is Riley. And every time we record, we are going to contact Riley, discern his location, and let you, the viewer, know. So I texted Riley a little bit earlier. For no other reason other than it just makes us laugh. I texted Riley a little bit earlier, and he only is now getting back to me. And so I texted him about two hours ago, and I said, Hey, bud, where are you? And he said, At the time of the question, I was en route to Arizona to visit my girlfriend. Now that I have Wi-Fi again, I am in Arizona. How serendipitous. So he's in Arizona, and we were just talking about the Good Place episode, A Girl from Arizona. It's a sign, Garrett. We're on the right track in continually harassing Riley every episode. So that has been the first of many, many Where's Riley segments. And now, on with the rest of the podcast. So we're going to do our pop culture reference of the episode we're introducing a new segment all right Seamus I know you came up with this one so you want to give us a little background on it oh yeah uh this was recently we all got to have a screening of the classic 1925 Soviet film Battleship Potemkin Correct. I'm saying that right? Yes, you are. Really interesting film. Quite old, but it really does give a lot of interesting insight into just propaganda, filmmaking, and that the era of, you know, Russian-Soviet film. For those of you who don't know, Battleship Potemkin is about, you know, a mutiny on a battleship for the communist cause, and there's a, a scene in Odessa, Russia. Yes, where the people of the town have come to rally for the people that are mutinying on the battleship and the czar sends in soldiers to put down the mutiny yeah there's a there's a very large massacre scene really showing how truly terrible the the bourgeoisie white army czarist uh nationalist people were you know as they wanted the audience to think back on release and uh this was the start of a somewhat very recognizable film trope of the baby carriage being dangerously let down the stairs in a very upsetting situation, usually when this goes down. 
In the popular vernacular, this is known as the Odessa Steps sequence from Battleship Potemkin because it is on these long steps down to the harbor in Odessa. The setup is that the baby's mother has been shot down by the Tsar's soldiers, and the baby carriage is going down the stairs slowly as people watch on in horror as it goes on past them. This has been parodied countless times, I think most notably in The Untouchables. Mm-hmm. which is a film that's very close to my heart, and I'm assuming both of yours. Of course. And I think it's something that once you've seen, you will pick up on time and time again in other aspects of pop culture, whether it is contributing to the theme of the thing that is being parodied in or not. Seamus and I were having a conversation before the podcast that now looking back on the Odessa Steps parody sequence in The Untouchables, it almost might have a kind of commentary on the themes of the film, Al Capone, obviously, uh, is at the center of the story of The Untouchables and is a kind of king of Chicago. And Elliot Ness and his group of Untouchables are the only people willing to stand up for the will of the people and speak truth to power in a very similar fashion to the way that the battleship Potemkin depicts the communist overthrowers of authority. So yeah, I think uh, that's something that's really good to have in your toolbox when you're trying to unpack maybe some of the stuff that you're witnessing in pop culture today. So if the conversation ever veers towards black and white Soviet films... <laughs> Involving baby murder. you covered. It's some gruesome stuff. It's really gruesome stuff, truly. All right, um, I think we should move on to Save the Rec Center now. Um, I'm actually going to pull one that's a few weeks old, but I was thinking about it a lot the last couple days. A, r- a few weeks ago, Ricardo and I went to see a really great new horror film called Ready or Not. It's a real romp. A woman on her wedding night finds out that her husband's family makes the new member of the family play a game every time somebody joins their group. And if you pick hide and seek, they're going to try to hunt you down and kill you. It's a stupid premise that the movie knows is stupid, and it has a really good time with it, and I highly recommend it. I'm going to go with a personal favorite of mine this week. If you haven't seen them, or if you haven't seen them in a while, or you need to give them a second chance, which I will always advise. I can already see Garrett rolling his eyes at me. Uh, The Cloverfield movies. I'm just going to get this out of the way early so I don't talk about it a lot in every episode, which I probably will anyway. Cloverfield, 10 Cloverfield Lane, lesser so the Cloverfield Paradox. Watch them all anyway. They're, you know, J.J. Abrams and... You know, his crew of wacky, wacky boys, they're just getting up to great sci-fi premises that uh, they kind of just adopted from other scripts that weren't going anywhere, and they, they just have a lot of fun with them. Ten Cloverfield Lane specifically, John Goodman is absolutely wonderful. Cloverfield Trilogy, go check it out again. Ricardo, please change the topic <laughs> as fast as possible. Moving away from Cloverfield, Disenchantment on Netflix. Matt Groening's new uh, animated show. That's season two's coming out soon, right? Yeah, it's already come out. It's the like the second half of season one. Which I'm going to co-endorse this one because this is actually a, a hell of a lot of fun. I'll have to check it out. I was kind of skeptical, but if you guys say it's good, I'll have to give it a watch. Definitely worth it. And I think on that note, we're going to wrap up right here. Thank you all for listening, and we will talk at you next week. Bye. Bye.